So you probably remember that I've been talking about this very simple teaching. It's really one of the most famous, most repeated lines in the Buddhist teachings. And it's not, part of it at least, isn't really distinct to the teachings of the Buddha. It's basic human common sense. Abandoning unskillful actions, cultivating the good, and purifying the heart. These are the teachings of all the Buddhas. Wherever you would find an enlightened one, we can imagine that that enlightened one would be teaching us, would be teaching us to abandon what is unwholesome, cultivate what is good, and to purify the heart. And generally, our habit, I think, is to be dismissive of things that are simple. Some kind of response like, yeah, okay, I get that. And not really want to take a look at it, reflect on it. Is it Mark? Forget your name. Don, would you turn the top two lights on a little higher? Maybe about halfway each. Great, thanks so much. I read this last night. I'll just say it again. Don't disregard merit, wholesome acts, thinking it won't come back to me. With dripping drops of water, even a water jug is filled. Little by little, a sage is filled with wholesome acts, with merit. And then one other passage from the Dhammapada I wanted to share at the beginning, another very famous one that most of us have heard many times. Right from the beginning of the Dhammapada, this collection of uh, verses, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows, as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. You abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. You abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. Hatred never ends through hatred. But non-hate alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. So I think it's useful for us to consider that it doesn't get any more complicated than this. Abandoning what's unskillful, cultivating what's good, purifying the heart. And in a way, we're just getting more clear about what needs to be abandoned, more clear about what is worthy of setting in motion, cultivating, and more clear about what actually, in the heart, what actually needs to be cleaned, cleansed, or purified. Buddha was pretty wholehearted about this. He said, abandon what is unskillful, practitioners. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you to abandon what is unskillful. But because this abandoning is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. You could just imagine he's saying, or some wise person is saying this to us, develop what is skillful, practitioners. It is possible to develop what is skillful. If it weren't possible, I would not say to you to develop what is skillful. But it is possible. So I say to you, develop what is skillful. If this were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say it. 
But because this development of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, develop what is skillful. And the interesting thing is, you know, I often say this, clearly we humans work. We do a lot of hard work all day long, most of our lives. We're working, we're doing things. And if we thought that, you know, something would lead to benefit, we would do it. We do all kinds of things thinking it's going to lead to our benefit and only to be frustrated or only to experience something that's just temporary. So here we have somebody saying, no, in, you know, in particular what we've been studying this retreat, you know, the, how, what it is to, that needs to be abandoned, what it is that needs to be cultivated, how to purify the mind. And this, you know, is said to directly lead to, what does the Buddha say, pleasure, conducive to benefit and pleasure. I mean, it seems like we'd want to check this out. I mean, is it really true? And it's important because a lot of time people come on retreat and, you know, it can, you hear reports, it can sound a bit like a slog, like, well, why would somebody want to do that? You know, they're interesting people to hang out with, TV programs to watch, good food to eat. Why would anybody want to do this if it doesn't actually lead to benefit and pleasure? I want to take the time to read the the Buddha's own turning, you know, his own recognition of what it is that needed to be abandoned, what it is that needed to be cultivated. And just to hold it as, you know, legend or story, but as a, a maybe archetypal and useful story. So first the Buddha describes his very luxurious upbringing. I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement, I had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Varanasi. My turban was also from Varanasi, as were my tunic, my lower garments, my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels full of attractive people. And I did not once come down from the palace, whereas the servants and workers and retainers in other people's homes were fed meals of lentil soup and broken rice. In my home, the servants and workers and retainers were fed wheat, rice, and meat. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me, when an untaught, run-of-the-mill person, subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged, one is horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious that one too is subject to aging, not beyond aging. If I, who am subject to aging, not beyond aging, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, on seeing another person who is aged, that would not be fitting for me. As I noticed this, the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. And he goes on to say the same thing about illness and uh, realizing that, you know, seeing that I'm subject to illness, I shouldn't be disgusted. So as I noticed this, the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away from me. And then he said the same thing about death, as he saw death and noticed that ordinary disgust that we have when we see death. Just even seeing a dead squirrel on the side of the road, we get that very visceral reaction of disgust, like, how dare it, you know, be dead in my neighborhood or something like that. Somebody ought to get rid of this. This is not appropriate. As I noticed this, the living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. This enchantment as if life were here forever. 
So you can see that the Buddha is beginning to wake up to what is to be abandoned, like these three intoxications with youth, with health, with life itself. Some superficial, deluded sense that these were our possessions, that we actually owned our health, owned our youth, owned our life in some real way. That it was a real possession that I am in control of in some fashion. A little later then, uh, the Buddha, um, reflecting back, talks about his uh, going into homeless life, into becoming a seeker. Before my self-awakening, when I was still just an unawakened bodhisattva, a Buddha-to-be, being subject myself to birth, aging, illness, death, sorrow, defilement, unskillful habits of mind, I sought happiness in what was subject to birth, subject to aging, illness, death, sorrow, and defilement. And the thought occurred to me, why am I being myself subject to birth, defilement, etc., seeking what is subject to these things? What if I were to seek that which is unborn, unaging, unailing, undying, sorrowless, undefiled, unexcelled, security from bondage, unbinding? So at a later time, when I was still young, black-haired, endowed with the blessings of youth, in the first stage of life, I shaved off my hair and beard, though my parents wished otherwise, and were grieving with tears on their faces. And I put on the robe and went forth from the home life to homelessness." You know, and if we read that to uh, the crowd of folks, they would think this guy was quite a dreamer. You know, what if I were to seek the unborn, the unailing, the undying, the sorrowless, the undefiled, the unexcelled, security from bondage, unbinding. Because we have, I think it's fair to say, most of the time at least, we have a very strong sense that happiness is to be found in the things of the world, in possessions, in relationships, and that even if we're honest and we say, yeah, and they're temporary, you know, we can't count on them forever, but for as long as they last, it's as meaningful as it gets, honey. So, you know, take what you can get. Appreciate what you have. So that when it gets taken away, that's the question. So then when it gets taken away, what? We'll be so grateful that we had something? I mean, maybe, but probably we'll experience loss. You know, a lot of us here have experienced loss in, already in our lives quite a bit, some more than others. And uh, having had a really good thing, does it make loss easy? Is it easier to let go of our wealth, having been wealthy? I mean, let go of our life having been wealthy or having had wholesome relationships. So the Buddha had some intuition. This is, in some ways, uh, getting at this point that came up last night about the big yes. What do we say yes to? Is there something, do we intuit something that's unborn, unaging, unailing? undying, sorrowless, undefiled, unexcelled, security from bondage, that which is safe, unbinding, the unconditioned. Do we intuit that? At another point, the Buddha says, By wise effort and earnestness, find for yourself an island that no flood can overwhelm. So I think uh, as we talk about abandoning what is unwholesome and cultivating the good, there needs to be some sense that there is something good to be cultivated. There is a direction or a freedom. It's interesting uh, when you look at 
the story of the Buddha, his insight under the Bodhi tree really follows this teaching we've been looking at for this retreat, to abandon what is unskillful, to cultivate the good, to purify the heart. You might remember, you know, after seeing the um, limitations of ascetic practices, fasting, things like that, the Buddha ate some good food, regained his physical and mental balance and strength, and being alone, found a beautiful tree, big tree, sat underneath it, and felt the time was right to make this resolve. You know, I'm feeling pretty good, feeling pretty clear. I resolve not to move from my seat until I come to understand that which can be understood by a human being. And he sat, and his mind entered deep calm. And in that state of deep calm, he came to understand things. And the way he explained it, his first insight was seeing the... Now, we can understand this in terms of our own moment-to-moment experience, but as it's told, uh, as the Buddha explained it, he saw it in terms of one life after another. One life arising, being lived out, remembering that life, and remembering the particular qualities of that life, and then passing away, and then being reborn. And so seeing that death and rebirth of not only his lives, but all beings, in terms of the qualities that were cultivated or abandoned, we could say, in that life. So basically, his insight under the Bodhi tree, you know, the thing that that Buddhists, you know, make a big deal about, this night under the Bodhi tree by the Buddha, is basically seeing lives coming and going. And you can imagine infinite numbers, you know, the insight being deep and resonant, just seeing the great patterns of beings coming and going according to intention, the qualities that were abandoned, the qualities that were cultivated. Getting it down cold that it matters. That's really the insight, the early insights in that night under the Bodhi tree. It really matters what living beings, what intentions are cultivated and abandoned. It really matters. It's not insignificant. And really, you know, as you probably know, the big evil in Buddhism isn't the devil, it's ignorance. And what do we mean by ignorance? Well, one of the most clear and straightforward definitions of ignorance is thinking that it doesn't matter. The quality of our intentions don't matter very much. It doesn't really matter if I take this thing that's not mine or manipulate this person in a little way. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if, even though I'm inclined to check in with my mom and dad, I'm just not going to, I just don't feel like it. It doesn't really matter. It's just so easy to, when something is difficult for whatever reason, um, to think it doesn't matter, or when something is pleasant, to think that it does matter. You know, I need to go eat that thing, or I need to go watch that thing, or I need to go, you know, do whatever. It's like being led, led around by something relatively superficial, what's pleasant and what's unpleasant, and really backing away from a sort of a more um, sensitive, intuitive, deeper sense of what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. What leads to real good for ourselves and others, and what leads to real actual harm for ourselves and others. It's the not seeing the world in that light that is the definition of ignorance. We just don't think it's relevant like that how we're living our life actually leads anywhere or has consequences. Because how else can we explain the way, I mean, we're pretty good people here in this room, but how else do we explain to ourselves how uh, often, you know, we do things that in hindsight we realize we're sort of closed-hearted and uh, self-centered and basically reinforcing the sense of tightness, a constricted sense in the world. 
not an expanded sense in the world. You know, when we hear this, we get frightened because we don't know where it's going to lead. It's like, I don't have it in me to be a Mother Teresa or, you know, whatever. You just fill in your particular favorite saint who was able or at least seemed to be more able to live a generous and uh, giving life. You know, I just don't have it in me. I'm just not built for that or something like that. But the question that we want to be asking ourselves step by step, little by little, are we interested in being happy? Are we interested in being free? <clears throat> are we interested in pleasure? Real good feeling, you know? Actually, what we actually do want. <laughs> are we interested in what we actually want, which is to be happy and you know, experience pleasurable states? There's like countless, uh, not countless, but there are a number of stories in the suttas and the discourses where the Buddha runs into people, you know, who at the time, like especially the Brahmins who were really into their rituals and, you know, the chanting and the sacrifices at the time. And they evidently they get good results. You know, you do this kind of sacrifice and good things come your way. And the Buddha said, well, if you really want good things to come your way, you know, develop generosity to develop morality, you know, develop your mind, purify your heart. There are direct ways that lead to happiness, that can be cultivated. So given, you know, given the actual nature of things, this is just a question for reflection, and I'll save some time at the end, what actions, what motivations are actual causes and conditions for genuine happiness? I mean, this is something we'd want to put our heads together around. Okay, all of us have lived our lives. We've been knocked around. We've learned a few things. So what have we discovered? What are the actual motivations, actual intentions, actions that lead to genuine happiness, that have led directly in our experience to genuine happiness that we can share with each other. And certainly, you know, we can probably share the actual motivations and actions that have led to unhappiness. You know, so at least we can together share that and have a sense of what to what there is to avoid. Robert Thurman um, tells this funny story teaching story that's quite useful. He's a professor at Columbia and um, a longtime Buddhist practitioner and teacher. One of the early monks, he was a monk for a short time back in the 60s under the Dalai Lama. And uh, he has this story of uh, being in a subway car in New York City. And some people are just sitting calmly reading the paper or eating their lunch. And, and uh, some people are maybe emotionally disturbed or uh, whatever, hassling people, not the kind of people you want to be around. And, you know, if you just got a couple stops, your strategy for happiness is to sort of hunker down in your corner, hold the paper close, and radiate that vibe, you know, stay away from me. You're not getting anything from me. Leave me alone. But then he says, but what happens if you're going to be in that subway car for eternity? then your strategy for happiness is going to be very different because there's no way you can be happy forever with those people. The only way you can be happy uh, is if you open to their discomfort, their agitation, and see if there's something to be done about it. You know, like we have to include the whole thing. And that's just for our own happiness, let alone the fact that it might actually help them. That we have to recognize that we're all bound up in this together in some way. And this really points us in the direction of what it is that we cultivate. You know, basically, when you look at the list of things to cultivate, there are various ways of loosening self-centered view, loosening up that self-centered obsession, drama. 
and and allowing the mind, allowing the heart to begin to include everything and respond to everything. And that's exactly what we fear, you know, like in terms of our normal strategies for happiness. Well, yeah, kind of I'll include my partner, you know, in my circle of happiness. He or she, you know, their happiness matters because their unhappiness is going to contaminate me. So it's to my advantage to keep my partner happy as best I can. But, you know, but then it, beyond that, it gets too much. You know, I can't afford to be interested in your happiness, to feel responsible for your happiness. I've got my own work to do. It often, you know, you hear people think that it's selfish, people who go off and do a lot of practice, that proverbial story of the Buddha, you know, leaving behind his newborn son and wife and family and going off and becoming a, a wandering ascetic. And uh, that we can, we can talk about that also in terms of the ultimate act of generosity, you know, giving our life away for everybody, practicing for everybody, not exclusively for our family or for our clan or for ourselves. So we get the sense that untangling the, this tangle that we're in, you know, this self-centered tangle that makes so much sense from our superficial point of view, it does make sense to be concerned about ourself only. So to untangle that really requires a shift in understanding. This is from uh, Tani Sarobiku, this wonderful Western monk, and this great book, uh, Wings to Awakening. Pretty dense, but really a, an amazing work of translation and, uh, and uh, analysis. This is how Ajahn Tani Saro does this uh, analysis in terms of cultivating anything good or developing any skill, any wholesome skill. Two things must be true. For a human being or for any living being to cultivate what is good, <coughs> two things must be true. There has to be a causal relationship, you know, cause and a result. If there's no such thing as cause and result, how is a living being going to set in motion something good for themselves? And not only that, there has to be a difference between good results and bad results. You know, results have to matter. So we, there has to be cause and effect. And the effects, some are good and some are not so good. And then from this, the Buddha creates the Four Noble Truths. The first noble truth, there is suffering, sometimes a simple way to translate it. It's really talking about a particular result a particular unfavorable result, right? Suffering, stress, is a particular result we experience. A particular unfavorable result we experience, right? So there are four quadrants to these two variables, right? Positive and negative in both of these variables. There are four that creates four possibilities. We have an unfavorable result. There is suffering. Then the second noble truth is there's a cause for that unfavorable result, right? And the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, that there is a favorable result, right? And then the fourth noble truth is there's a cause for that favorable result, which is the Eightfold Path. So this very simple teaching of to cultivate, to abandon what's unwholesome, to cultivate the good, it really, it has to do with the Buddha's awakening under the Bodhi tree, and it has to do with his central teaching, his first teaching, the Four Noble Truths. There are things to cultivate, there are things to abandon, and the Four Noble Truths are really built on this. I mentioned last night uh, Joseph Goldstein's book, One Dharma. He's really talking about the essential teachings of the Buddha, and in that he, he uses this teaching for some of the chapters. So this is from chapter 6, where he's talking about 
merit. And what what do we mean by wholesome? And remember, in Buddhism, the way the Buddha taught, he's being very pragmatic. We really want to ground these teachings in merit, not make it something abstract, but really see it as a functional thing in our heart, in our mind. It does something. That's its definition. Merit is something that uh, sets in motion positive results. By positive results, we mean results that we seek, we actually seek when the mind is clear and in balance. So this is Joseph Goldstein. We move from the first of the teachings of all the Buddhas doing no harm to the second, acting for the good. This principle of one dharma, common to all traditions, highlights the positive actions we undertake both for our own welfare and for the benefit and well-being of others. Actions for the good accumulate what is called merit, one of the most commonly misunderstood concepts in Buddhism. Merit is the usual translation of the Pali word puna, which literally means virtue, or that which purifies and cleanses the life stream, bringing good results. Meritorious action hold the key to happiness in our lives. They are the seeds of happiness in all kinds. They are the seeds of happiness of all kinds, both temporary worldly success and spiritual accomplishments. It is accumulated merit that makes them possible. But we mistake the meaning of merit when we, when this idea, when we use this idea to strengthen some sense of self, of someone behind all the actions acquiring gold stars for good behavior. Rather, the notion of merit comes from the profound understanding of interdependence, the understanding that everything arises from causes. Meritorious action actions are simply those that have the power to bring happiness and blessings in our lives. So this is really important that we understand merit in an impersonal way, not, not somebody acquiring merit. Whether or not there's a self, clearly there's an experience of happiness, clearly there's an experience of unhappiness. Is there anybody in the room that hasn't been happy or hasn't been unhappy? So we directly know from our experience that there is something called happiness. There is something called unhappiness. So if there is something called happiness, it doesn't drop from outer space. In this conditioned world, happiness arises due to certain causes and conditions. It couldn't have ever been for us, you know, that moment of happiness, unless there were causes and conditions that led to it, right? So merit, what we mean by that word, it's just those things that support the arising of what we call happiness. And there have to be those things, because in a conditioned world, you don't get happiness without the causes for happiness. In the same way, you don't get unhappiness without the causes for unhappiness. So given that there have been moments in our lives where we've been very distraught, caught in pain, you know, like the Buddha says, beating our breasts, pulling our hair, screaming, wailing, right? We've had those moments. That means there are causes for those moments. And if we clearly understand those causes, it's possible to abandon them. And there have been moments when we felt really light and buoyant, loved, Uh, supported in all ways, part of the whole, feel in that deep sense of belonging, deep sense of gratitude and kindness, this really expanded and beautiful state. And because they actually exist, they actually have causes. And if we clearly understand the causes, we can help set them in motion. So it's nothing, if we get beyond, if we take it beyond this very pragmatic level, we get in a lot of trouble. We end up, you know, creating all sorts of hierarchical notions in our mind about good people and bad people. And, but we want to be very pragmatic about this. Things happen according to causes and conditions. And because we know directly that there is the experience of happiness and there is the experience of unhappiness, 
we see it all over the place in our own lives, around us. There have to be causes. It makes sense that we'd want to learn these causes. We'd want to understand this deeply. And just to have the sense that um, there's always something we can do. Like, can you imagine a time in your life when there was no wholesome act available to you? Or no unwholesome intention to abandon that would have been pragmatically useful to abandon. So to have this sense that there's always something to do, you know, there's always something to cultivate, there's always something to abandon, until that natural cultivation of what's good and the abandoning of what's bad is so, just second nature to the mind. And then there's nothing to do but leave things alone. So before opening it up, I want to just go through some of the traditional things that are considered to be good to cultivate. And again, as you hear them, grounding them in your own experience, like how you've seen these as causes for real happiness. And there's different ways that this is talked about in the Buddhist tradition. You probably could name off a few of your own lists, like the seven factors of awakening or reverence for life, the four Brahma-Baharas of loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity. But one of the more traditional lists of meritorious actions is this one here. It's quite popular in the lay communities in Buddhist countries. They're really into developing merit. And so it begins, as you might expect, with general, excuse me, dana or generosity, this delight in giving, a life based on giving, looking for places to give, always interested in giving, and generally um, seeing the direct experience of happiness in the giving. It's not like later or I'm giving because I have to. It is actually a cause for delight. In the chapter that Joseph Goldstein wrote, he uh, <clears throat> relates a story from the Buddhist tradition of uh, uh, a supporter of one of the Buddhas, not this historic Buddha, but a previous Buddha. And uh, a, a poor potter was one of his, I think his chief patron. But he wasn't very rich. And the king was sort of, trying to become the Buddha's, this Buddha's chief patron, you know, the person who gets to feed him and give him robes and take care of him. And the Buddha said, oh, something like, you know, this guy's hard to beat. And he started talking about this potter and his family and how, you know, uh, he was taking care of his blind parents, his aged parents, and he was out working and they gave him the food, you know, that he had prepared for them. And he came home and they told him. And he was so happy that they had given him the food for the house that he was in rapture for, uh, I think they said four weeks. The parents were in rapture for two weeks. And he, the potter, was in rapture for four weeks. Just the delight in knowing that he gave something to somebody he really respected. So just to look you know, and to begin to experiment with dana, with giving, like how it can be a cause for happiness, make us happy. I, I didn't really believe it at first, but sometimes I'd hear Stephen Kamala. Some of you know Stephen Kamala, wonderful teachers that lead the TCBC summer retreat and often teach at Common Ground when they're in town. And uh, Steve would say things like, yeah, when, when life wasn't working well, he and Kamala would just start giving things away, you know, start gifting stuff to sort of set in motion happiness in their lives. And, uh, and then I started, you know, to notice that they're really generous people. <laughs> and, uh, and I could see, oh, yeah, they really, they do that. When they're, that's how they generate the causes for happiness in their life. They're really generous. Second one we've talked a lot about, especially in terms of what to abandon, but we can see sila as a positive thing, too. 
sila is a cause for happiness because when we practice non-harming, that's really the easiest definition of sila, is reverence for life, put it into the positive, it's like we trust our heart. We can take it on the road. We know it's not going to do something bad. And that's a wonderful feeling, knowing that the heart knows how to restrain itself from being harmful, being hurtful. It knows when to shut up. It knows when not to gossip. It knows when not to steal. It knows not to cheat uh, on our partner. It knows how to do those things. And there's that happiness. In Buddhism, we call it the bliss of blamelessness. We can really trust it. As the Dalai Lama says, be kind whenever possible. It's always possible. <laughs> and part of this sila is like this switch from short-term satisfaction to long-term satisfaction. Because what gets in the way of restraint is like we want that short-term sensual delight, whatever it is, you know, whether it's through cheating or taking something that's not ours, or just the delight of, you know, gossiping. There's a certain pleasure in sort of saying something that the other person's going to find interesting. But that short-term, whatever that little delight might be, versus that long-term satisfaction of trusting our heart and feeling the dependability of our heart, it's like there's no comparison. And uh, you know, just that yucky feeling of knowing we've got to be really careful because we can make messes and we've got the history to show for it. You know, like how many times we've dug holes for ourselves, created problems. The next one is bhavana, uh, which means mental training or um, developing the mind. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. And then the next two after that are reverence and service as causes for happiness. Revering what is worthy of reverence. I have this one quote that I'd like to read. I haven't read it in a while. From uh, Sri uh, Nisargadatta, this well-known Indian saint from the last century. <clears throat> in his book, I Am That, this is a great spiritual text. He says, uh, whatever name you give it, will or steady purpose or one-pointedness of mind, you'll come back to earnestness, sincerity, honesty. When you are in dead earnest, you bend every incident, every second of your life to your purpose. You do not waste time and energy on other things. You are totally dedicated. Call it will or love or plain honesty. We are complex beings at war within and without. We contradict ourselves all the time, undoing today the work of yesterday. No wonder we are stuck. A little integrity would make a lot of difference. And I think this is what's meant by reverence, like understanding what's worthy of respect and then having that quality of heart, that devotion, that respect for it, really sticking to it. And uh, in uh, Joseph Goldstein's chapter, he mentions this wonderful story from the suttas of Anuruddha. And this is a time when there was a big dispute in the Sangha. And um, in this case, the monks were at each other's throats. I mean, not literally, but fighting over some silly breaking of the rule and some people thinking that it wasn't a breaking of the monastic rules and some thought that it was. And they split into two camps. And the Buddha left them. He, just, he told them to kind of cut it out. And they didn't. They kept at it. And they, said, they actually said to the Buddha, don't you worry about us, you know. We don't want it to be the cause for you fretting. You know, just let us have our argument. <laughs> you leave us alone. And the Buddha thought, these guys are crazy. <laughs> and literally left and did a retreat in the forest with just an elephant. Um, and then eventually wandered around and, and came upon one of his cousins, who was also a monk, Anuruddha, uh, who was a well-respected practitioner wise person, and uh, he asked, you know, how are you doing, Anuruddha? I'll just read this little passage. Uh, 
I hope, Anuruddha, that you are all living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Anuruddha replied, Surely, Venerable Sir, we are living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. See, the Buddha was always smart because he would always want to elicit a teaching. His whole purpose for being was to set these teachings in motion. So he then asked, as a wise person would, but Anuruddha, how do you live thus? <laughs> right? So he set up Anuruddha's answer. And Anuruddha said, Venerable Sir, as to that, I think thus. It is a gain for me. It is a great gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness toward these venerable ones, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I maintain mental acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are of different body. We are different in body, venerable sir, but one in mind. And uh, this passage goes on, not in this chapter, but in the, uh, in the suttas. And he goes on to great detail about how they, you know, just the, the elegance of how they take care of each other and all the sort of ordinary things of who sets the water out and who puts the stuff away and who takes care of the extra food and what happens when someone's sick. And just that, that beautiful community life, really. And to have, like, that's something we can have reverence for. Even something as ordinary as common ground. And some of you feel this. It's ordinary in some respects, but it's extraordinary in other respects. And it's appropriate to have a real reverence for what's happening here. Not to create a sense of pride, you know, our center is better than other centers, or but just, just the mystery of people coming together in concord and doing really wholesome things together, if this is worthy of respect. In the great scheme of things, this is a, a truly beautiful thing that's happening here. And, and to just let that reverence be a cause for happiness in our hearts. That, that we're part of something, that we can actually recognize something that's worthy of respect. Service is another way to give, you know, even little things, cleaning the bathroom, picking up some trash. <coughs> There's so much happiness in just taking care of what needs taken care of. It's like the world is so complex but when we find one thing we know for sure needs to be done, it's got to be done anyway. And just to give ourselves to, to it totally. In that moment, there's no uncertainty in our mind. We are literally liberated from uncertainty because we know this has to be done. You know, like pooping. You know, it's like so amazing. You can't avoid it. But we don't really give ourselves to it. We want to be doing something else. But it's like that's the time when we can just really take care of that business. And I, I really have learned to do this. Like when I go out of the bathroom, it's a really peaceful time because I don't need to worry about anything else for a while. I can just take care of my business. I can do it wholeheartedly. And uh, it works out pretty well <laughs> most of the time. should be recording this talk. <laughs> and then there's a couple other fun ones here. One is transference of merit. So this is, there's a lot of sort of folk religious stuff in uh, these teachings of merit, you know, just in the lay community. And so there's sort of all these little tricks where, you know, we do something good, but then we give it away. Like one of the traditional things, we can do it for Rini tonight and other people you love that have passed away. We can just have a sense of the wholesomeness of being on retreat today. We feel the goodness that <clears throat> what good has been set in motion by doing this work together. And, and then we give it away. We say, may this goodness, the blessing of my life today, may it somehow support 
this person, Rini Howard, or my mother who died in April, or whoever you bring to mind. And that's also a cause for merit. Giving merit away is a cause for merit, a cause for happiness. And you can just see if that's true for you. Like giving away your real gold leads to gold. And rejoicing in others' merit, you know, instead of being envious, you know, oh, he got to feed the Buddha, you know, but I couldn't even get close. I, I was signed up for that retreat with that great teacher, you know, and then I got sick and I couldn't go. And all those other people got to go and hang out with that great teacher, you know, and just feeling stingy, you know, like we missed. Instead of appreciating oh, how great they got to hang out with that teacher, how great they got to go on retreat, how great that they're able to sit and have such good samadhi. They seem so peaceful. That makes me happy that they have deep states of calm. And you see that as a cause for happiness. That's what we call mudita. You know, appreciative joy is a cause for happiness. Appreciating the happiness of other beings is a cause for happiness. Seeing your cat stretched out on your bed, it's easy for most of us to have mudita for our pets. When they're happy, when they're eating, and then content, or they're lying in front of a fireplace or a warm place, we're happy for them. It's interesting that it's so much harder for other people, you know, even our good friends. It's like, we don't want them to be too happy. <laughs> because I think, you know, it reminds us of our own feelings of inadequacy, not having enough. Then being around the teachings, listening to the, the teachings of the Buddha or wise teachings, talking, sharing wise teachings with other people. Many of us know this is a real cause for happiness, without a doubt. Some of my happiest moments of my life were sitting in a Dharma talk, receiving it, and just feeling so happy to be around these teachings. I remember the first time I came in contact with these teachings and just the waves of gratitude and confidence that these teachings were wise, that these that this is what I wanted to be connected with in my life. It always makes me happy. It makes me happy even having Dharma books around me. You know, just knowing I have a lot of good, I have 108 great Dharma talks by Ajahn Sumedho on my computer. That makes me feel so safe and happy just knowing that all that good Dharma is there, even though I've only listened to probably, you know, 20 out of the 108. So these are just very real causes for happiness. And the last one I'll mention briefly, because we'll talk about it tomorrow night, rectification of views. So tomorrow night, we'll talk about purifying the mind, purifying the heart of wrong view of, you know, all of the defilements, all of the constricted states of mind, basically, as a cause for happiness. So we have ways. Uh, to practice letting go, ways to cultivate, things to cultivate. Why not devote our life to being experts at happiness, you know? And then just by contact will be a cause for other people's happiness. So see us being really good at being happy. And watch, you know? Watch us abandon what is in the way of happiness and watch us cultivate what is a cause for happiness. Watch us purify the mind. And it will be beneficial for ourselves and for all beings. So I'll leave it here, but let's take about five or ten minutes. People might have some stories from your own life or questions about the talk. Yeah, Terry. Yeah. 
wondering if uh, it's like we hold the idea that it can't be figured out, like what to say yes to, what to say no to. But what we can do is really work on the mind, the heart that's living the life, <clears throat> and as much as we can, open all the doors and windows so that mind and that heart is including everything, including what your friends are demanding, including your deeper aspirations including the bodily needs, that little person inside of you, that little girl inside of you that's saying, you know, put me to bed or, you know, feed me or something like that. So that we're including all of that, the, that we're making a hard mind that's sensitive to the whole shebang. And then, then we get out of the way, like what we do, because uh, we just have that intention of wanting to take care but not be specific about it. Like where violence comes in, like and even activists can be really violent. It's because they have a fixed idea of what's important, and that fixed in the sense that this is more important or this is what I care about. 
that actually what we care about is moment to moment. We don't know what we're going to care about in the next moment. So we shouldn't be projecting on our life what's important. We should be actually discovering in that moment what feels important by showing up in that moment. And it might be in this moment, you know, the grass needs to be cut. And for some reason, that's what we're responding to. And we're just cutting the grass. Even though there's a war in Afghanistan, or this over there, or whatever, this is what we're dealing with. This is what feels relevant. Now, that's not so easy to do, you know, not to have a, a fixed plan. But you can begin to play with that idea a little bit. Like, uh, you know, you wake up in the morning, and you realize very clearly, I care. My heart's moved to act, to do, you know, and especially when we're young, we really have a lot of that energy and, and so many possibilities. And not have a, like, you know, like pretend that we know this is the most important thing. doesn't mean you, you ha you're not going to make choices, but you're just going to make one choice after another. You don't have to sort of be stuck with your choices, kind of follow your nose. I don't know if that helps. But otherwise, you know, we start to have this hierarchical thing that I, I mentioned a little bit earlier. And we think that these causes are more important than spending time with our parents. I mean, how do we actually know what's the best use of our time? I don't know if you can figure that out. All we can know, have a, a chance of knowing, is what our motivation is. And we can look and we see, oh, my motivation to be with my parents is guilt or is really pure. My motivation to go to do this activist thing is I'm interested in meeting interesting people, you know, or is really pure. You know, I really care about the suffering in the world. So we just have to look at our motivations and begin to discern the motivations that actually lead to happiness. There are those motivations, and this we'll talk about tomorrow night, that don't have to do with self. The motivations that are about self, I have to be this good person, generally lead to suffering, contracted states. That's why some people um, you know, who do the so-called acts in the world to make the world a better place are really cultivating a lot of negative qualities in their mind. And other people who live very simple lives, raising a child or something like that, can develop really saintly qualities, and vice versa. You know, people can be very self-centered in, in that more, you know, narrow life, and people can break their heart wide open going out and saving the world. So it doesn't really matter what we do. It really matters the qualities that are being cultivated in the doing. And that really frees us up from having to get it right like do the right thing, make the right choice. Because we can cultivate beautiful qualities. We can cultivate the causes for happiness in any life. It doesn't uh, require a particular trajectory. I think we should probably leave it here so we have time for a little walking. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath or two. Patty, uh, maybe 10 minutes of walking, and then that will leave us a little less than 20 minutes for our set and chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.